Hello and welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that normally looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Brian. I'm Sean. And how are you doing today, Sean? Terrific, Brian. Just terrific. That's right. I'm not saying it. What? Yeah. No, no. This will be bad luck. This is terrible. You have to say it. Maybe I'll say it next time. Oh. Well, I'm not giving thanks today. Fine. I'm super as always. I'm giving thanks for your consistency. Thank you. (laughs) You know what I'm giving thanks for, Brian? What? That beautiful change of temperature, the smell of cinnamon and nutmeg that I find around every street corner, vendors selling chestnuts on the streets. That's right, Brian. It's the 1st of December. (laughs) Uh, Sean, did you catch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade this year? Oh, it was amazing, wasn't it? Amazing. (laughs) All that cast of colorful characters. I won't even name them. There's so many. It's funny that uh, we have been mentioning the holiday known as Turkey Day, because the film we are going to watch today is a tribute to one of the great makers of Turkey who has ever existed. The person I'm talking about, of course, is the man commonly considered to be the worst film director who ever lived. Paul W.S. Anderson? He directs the Resident Evil films. (laughs) No, no. By common consensus, the worst director who ever lived is the esteemed director of The Danish Girl. Tom Hooper? Yeah. Tom Hooper. No. I mean, come on, Sean. No, I'm really honestly talking about the person. Now I'm going to try for the third time. The third time's the charm. We're talking about Edward D. Wood Jr. Of course. Known as Ed Wood. This is a film that is particularly dear to my heart. This movie came out in 1994 when I was in high school and I loved it. This is a movie that actually taught me about injustice, Sean. Do you know why that was? Why? This movie was critically acclaimed. It's beautifully and artfully made. It did actually win two Academy Awards. Best Supporting Actor. And I'm going to say a technical award like makeup. Absolutely right. (laughs) You hit it on the nose. It won two Academy Awards, so it was not completely overlooked. But if you ask me, Tim Burton, beautiful biopic, Ed Wood, is... One of my top three films of all time. Certainly one of the best movies of the 90s. And one of the best movies about movies. You know, Brian, it's quite funny. When I was younger, you definitely could have called me a fan of Tim Burton, for sure. Beetlejuice impacted my childhood psyche like nothing you can think of. Yet, I'm 20 years of age now, and I have still not seen Ed Wood. Why has it passed me by, Brian? Tell me, Dan. (laughs) I don't know, babe. I mean... Edward is a is a loving period set homage filmed in black and white. That's probably why. Homage to the kind of B pictures and sci-fi pictures of the 1950s. It's so funny that you love uh, a sci-fi homage to the B pictures of the 1950s, considering how much you trashed the Rocky Horror Picture Show in the previous episode. Yeah, it is true. <laughs> I, I know, uh... Et tu, Brute? What is it? No. Mea culpa. Mea ca- I knew it was something in Latin. And you, Brute? Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Do you hear me hitting my breast, folks? All right, write it down there, babe. 
What I'm saying is, yes, and actually in addition to having a kind of love of sci-fi that suffuses this movie, it also has a strain of transvestitism, which also featured in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And yet you still hated it. It just didn't tick the boxes for me. Now, Sean, Tim Burton, I think we could agree, is one of the great and original artists of contemporary cinema history. Uh, well, definitely the late 20th century, we should say. You mentioned Beetlejuice. So are there other Tim Burton movies that hold a special place in your heart? Well, Edward Scissorhands, of course. Winona, Winona, Winona. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mars Attacks. Oh, yes. That I consider to be his last astonishingly interesting film of the 1990s. I'm also a very big fan of Sleepy Hollow. Uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure? Never seen it. How about I have one word for you. Meow. Oh my god, how could I forget? Oh my god, what a what a what a filmography of the nineteen nineties. No, honestly. The greatest yeah. superhero film ever made, and quite frankly, the only one you need to see. Of course we're referring to Batman Returns, oh, better known as Catwoman. You know, when I came out to my parents or whatever all those years ago, like the evidence of my heterosexuality was my love of Michelle Pfeiffer in Catwoman uh, in Batman. It's like, I didn't fancy her. I wanted to wear her outfit. It's like, there's quite a difference. And do you know what the second piece of evidence was? What? Halle Berry in the Flintstones. Because, babe, yeah, of course, I'd also want to wear a shredded leopard skin, (laughs) Stone Age figure looking. This was their conception of a red-blooded Irish man. Okay, now, Sean, how would you define the Tim Burton aesthetic? Deeply imaginative, a fantasy worlds, kind of like playful zaniness, juxtapositions of quite terrifying things, often with with the most bizarre and hilarious set pieces. So a kind of macabre humor. Would yeah. You say. yeah, they have an artificiality to them. They have an overly stylized quality. The characters have a kind of almost inhuman quality, in in the best sense, right? They're sort of mm. larger than life humanoid type mm. figures. Um, there's a there's a love of kind of the gothic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it has to be said he was one of the big hit makers of the late '80s and the early to mid '90s, right? I mean, Batman and Batman Returns were huge hits, and then along came this project called Ed Wood which was made on a shoestring. It was originally slated for one studio, and then when he said he wanted to film it in black and white, they balked and didn't want to do it, and it was taken up by those visionary people (gasps) Don't tell me, Orion. No, Disney. Oh, what? Yes, it was made by Touchstone at Disney. Touchstone was the slightly more adult uh, strand of Disney. Yes, we should be thanking Disney for taking on this oddball, kooky project. When I say to you, Ed Wood and the films of Ed Wood, do you have any sense of who who he was? Yeah, I mean, Plan 9 from Outer Space, that kind of stuff. What is it? Wasn't he known for, like, just being a dreadful filmmaker in the sense that, like, Every aspect of the mise-en-scene was falling apart and crumbling around you. It, Ramshackle, yeah. UFOs. Yeah, wasn't it so bad it's good that it's actually bad? But it's camp, right? The, I mean, and this is another thing. That... What is camp, Brian? <laughs> Go re- look at the previous episode. But he made these, not just sci-fi movies and kind of campy horror movies, but also, um, Edward was a queer filmmaker. Do you know anything about that? No. Yeah. So he made a sort of strange semi-documentary film about cross-dressing called Glenn or Glenda. Of course I've heard that one. Yeah. yeah. Well, what do you know about it? Um, it was the first starring role of Glenn Jackson. <laughs>
<laughs> if only, I'm sure Glenda would look beautiful in a pink Angora sweater. But no, it actually starred Edward himself oh. cross-dressing. And no spoiler alert here, the reason he was interested in it was because he himself was prone to wearing women's clothing on a regular basis. Now, what do you mean by that? Was he a transgendered person, or was he... Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't think that that category existed yeah. at the time in the 1950s. You had people like Christine Jorgensen, who underwent the, one of the first gender reassignment surgeries, mm -hmm. but Edward was essentially, as far as I can tell, a man who liked to have sex with women, but also enjoyed wearing women's clothing. I think in the in the world of, of recategorization that we exist in, let's hear it for the guys, red-blooded men who are heterosexual, who just love putting on women's clothes. I mean, I think Ed, Eddie Izzard? Yeah, I think it's fantastic. I think transvestism has gone out of fashion. Grayson Perry? Yeah, exactly. They're wonderful transvestites. Yeah, it's great. Wonderful. It'll be an interesting comparison with Dr. Frank N. Furter, whose trans identity we we wrestled with and grappled with in the previous episode. This one's just much more straight up, yeah? <laughs> um, do you know who wrote this film? Let's play a guessing game, but I know. No, you won't know. Then can I give up? <laughs> it's Scott Alexander and Larry Kazarewski. I no, hope I'm pronouncing no, that right. No, I have no idea who Well, wrote they wrote something that is one of your favorite works of art. Well, they didn't write Death Becomes Her. Nope. So what is it then? The People vs. O.J. Simpson. No! They're the creators of The People vs. O.J. Simpson. So these guys are, are a writing team with a lot of eclectic interests. I would say their best movie that I've ever seen is Ed Wood, but they also wrote The People vs. Larry Flint, which uh, is a... So two people versus... What a weird coincidence. Yeah, so they seem to have a have an interest in doing these kind of off-kilter biopics that are about sort of marginal or misunderstood figures. This was their dream project. They brought it to Tim Burton. He'd been a fan of Ed Wood's movies. He took no salary to make this because they really wanted to make it on a shoestring. But as you'll see when you see this movie, it is done with gorgeous production design. Every aspect of this movie is just perfect. So why aren't you giving the lowdown about what it's about? What can I say what it's about? It's about the most lovable optimist that Hollywood has ever produced. I mean, you can, I, I defy anyone to watch this movie and not come away just grinning with a kind of sense of, well, if you believe in it, you can make it happen. So don't dream it, be it, basically. Just like in the last film you hated. Yeah? Because <laughs> we're never going to get over this, folks. No. So who's in the film, Brian? Well, I think you know who plays the title role. Johnny Depp. At one time, Johnny Depp was that Hollywood star that everyone who was cool was like, well, I don't like Hollywood stars, but Johnny Depp's a risk-taking interesting guy. I love Johnny Depp in his first ever film role, which I think I believe I made you watch before. You know where he gets sucked into the bed in Nightmare on Elm Street? Oh, no, that was a different boyfriend. Oh, yes. <laughs> Whoops. It's, it's, it's one of the classic pieces of 80s horror cinema. And he, but he was just some cute boy who'd been on a TV show. 21 Jump Street. Yeah. So he went from 21 Jump Street to An Iron Man Street. Then he made films like Cry Baby when he got a little bit older. What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Um, obviously Ed Wood. And he, Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands. And he had a long-standing yeah. relationship with Tim Burton. Yeah, he, he seemed to be kind of cool and edgy. And now he's just the biggest lamezoid that exists in the movie world. The lamezoid years have been less than the amazing years. Isn't that right? I mean, even as recently as, like, the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Yeah, but that was 14 years ago at this point. Okay. Don't you think that his modern, most recent films are just rubbish? Well, I mean... Rubbish? 
to be honest, most of the bad ones have been him and Tim Burton. They've they sort of been rehashed versions of what they used to do well. Let's try to define what made Johnny Depp so exciting at a particular time. Well, I mean, he was attractive. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was, he was a pretty boy. Yeah, he's a pretty boy who also seemed to be cool with not being pretty sometimes. You know, Edward Scissorhands is a weird-ass role. Obviously, Tim Burton used Depp in a way that wasn't about his kind of matinee idol looks. Would you call Johnny Depp a slightly feminized matinee idol? Yeah, definitely. I mean, okay, the example I'll give is when you ever used to see him at award ceremonies and stuff. Like, yeah. I mean, I remember what he wore to the Pirates of the Caribbean Oscar year. Was it some kind of, like, mauve suit? I don't know. Sort of foppish, This yeah. is the kind of the memory that I have of him, and that, like... You know, before Jack, Captain Jack Sparrow needed eyeliner, he was probably already wearing it in his personal life, that kind of stuff. Yeah, but like, I mean, it, yeah, it's yeah. also like his roles. Like, what about how he approaches a character? Is there a slight queer yeah. twist that he brings? In many ways, I think he is a actor who is ready to feminize himself for a role. I'm thinking at the moment of... Sleepy Hollow, in which he's, mm -hmm. he's this big kind of like Nancy nonce, you know? Do you know who he supposedly based that performance on? Who? Angela Lansbury in <laughs> Death on the Nile and Pepe Le Pew. Really? The cartoon skunk. Okay. Yes, yes, amazing. Do you know who he based his performance on Ed Wood on? Whom? Ronald Reagan. Oh. Why, Sean? Why? Well, because Ronald Reagan was some like B list bullshit. Twat. He certainly was. <laughs> he certainly was. But he also kind of embodied a sense of American optimism, the kind of glad-handing salesman mm. who will kind of always sell you the fact that something is the best that it could possibly be, mm. even when it's all going to shit. Interesting that you say that about Reagan. I mean, well, Jimmy Carter was optimistic, wasn't it? Well, no, not at all. Jimmy Carter, in fact, was known for giving a speech called the Malaise speech. Oh, he did. It's in the trailer for 21st Century. He didn't right? actually ever say the word. Century. He didn't say the word Malaise, but somehow people heard the word Malaise. Well, when I heard that speech in the trailer for that movie, I was like, yeah, right on, Jimmy. I know, you were I like Jimmy Carter. He says it like it is. But Jimmy Carter basically was telling people that things were not so great, whereas Ronnie Reagan was coming in and saying, it's morning in America, and everything's sunny and happy. Do you, okay, would you kill politicians if you could go back in time? I am not John Hinckley, Sean. <laughs> and and, and that's know, all I, we're going to say about that. I don't know John Hinckley. never spoke to John Hinckley. Never had any correspondence with John Hinckley. Never received any correspondence from a man called John H., Never spoke to Ronald Reagan. Don't know who Ronald Reagan is. Didn't vote for Ronald Reagan. I don't know how we've suddenly gone back to Jodie Foster and the Reagan assassination attempt, but we need to get to watching this wonderful film, Ed Wood. Have I oversold this film to you? Jeez, uh, I really hope so, so I can take it down a notch or two. We haven't mentioned the other cast members. SJP. Yes, your, your absolute favorite. I mean, the family stone. I mean, have you heard about the Morgans? Come on. Do, do you know who the other female lead is? Um, female. The other female lead, I have one uh, word for you. Drek. Oh, Patricia Arquette. Yeah, Patricia Arquette. I can't be wondering Patricia Arquette. Can I just explain what that is? <laughs> so you know when she's like doing the best supporting actor thing and that really flat delivery she has. She's talking about like Mark Ryland. She's like, is a man fighting against injustice in communist Germany. Mark Ryland's Bridge of Spies. And then it's like Sylvester Sloan. She goes, as champion boxer. Drek Rocky Balboa 
she kind of just like messes it up and says, you know, <laughs> Drek. Maybe she's just saying that the film was Drek. Anyway, she she brings that same flat delivery to um to Edward. It also has Bill Murray in oh. it. Yeah, can it be a little bit of Martin Landau? Yes, honestly, Martin Landau brings the soul of this movie. I find this movie, in addition to being campy fun, I find it very moving, and I hope that you will as well. You know, you I know said that d- about Rocky Horror Picture Show. So, uh, <laughs> you did not, actually. What you said about the Rocky Horror Picture Show was that it's a movie that you like when you're an adolescent, and if you still like it after you're an adolescent, something is wrong with okay. you. And am I an adolescent? In you, fact, you act ha- like one. was I ever an adolescent? No, no. You, were a, you, were, you were a librarian <laughs> as a child, <laughs> weren't you? That's true. <laughs> um, you know, in, in high school, uh, in my English class, we had the opportunity to write an expository essay on any topic we wanted. Guess what Brian wrote about? Ed Wood! Yeah? I'm going to tell you the truth. I've seen the first two minutes of it about 15 years ago on television. But you didn't watch it through to the end. It was in black and white and it was late. And... Well, can I say, what are you... Honestly, what have you got against black and no, white? That... This is like... this. I, I didn't really call you out on this when we did Red River, but like... Okay, this is just a running joke. I love black and white films. I've got absolutely no problems with black and white films. Would I want to see Black Narcissus in black and white? No. no. Well, no, because that's not a film to be made in black and white. But by Tim Burton standards, this movie is very understated. It doesn't have big special effects. In fact, it has cheap special effects that are supposed to look cheap. It doesn't have big, you know, stylized monsters or worlds. It has actors acting. You know, it's a character-driven movie about a sort of obscure Hollywood figure filmed on a minor budget in black and white. I mean, I think it's a labor of love. I don't think Tim Burton has ever made a movie after this Mm. that's so kind of gem-like and sort of really showing his heart and his craft without all the kind of quotation marks. Yeah, and like recently, they're just just not good, you know? They, They all kind of seem to follow this like weird schematic of being really high budget gloss and as and wafer thin. I think anyone who doubts Tim Burton's artistry, I have two words for them, Ed Wood. And in fact, perhaps we should turn the film on now and, and see what you think. I've got two words for you. What? Ken Bone. <laughs> that's that, that's going to be so outdated oh my God. when this goes up. Ken Bone would fit in so well in Ed Wood. Oh my God. It's almost like I want to insert Ken Bone into this movie. You have got the aesthetic of this film down to a T. By the time this comes out, Ken Bone will be, you know, dust. He'll be in jail yeah. as a meth addict. Are you excited for Ed Wood, John? Yeah, I'm really excited. I just really hope that I don't hate this film as much as you hated mine. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, blast off. Let the music play. (laughs) Um, Die tomorrow, live tonight. We now take a journey into a chamber of horrors with Ed Wood. Bye. find out whose grave it is. Now, why do I always get hooked up with these spook details? Monsters, graves, bodies. You blind, saucer? And cut, Brent. We're moving on. 
That's perfect. Perfect. Uh, Mr. Wood, do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. That cardboard headstone tipped over. The, this graveyard is obviously phony. Nobody will ever notice that. Filmmaking is not about the tiny details. It's about the big picture. The big picture? Yes. Then how about when the policeman arrived in daylight, but now it's suddenly night? What do you know? Haven't you heard of suspension of disbelief? Greetings, Earthlings. We return from the other side. Here we are. <laughs> Sean, did it match my build-up? It's funny. What I'm going to say about it is that the beauty of Tim Burton's films, or at least um, many of the early ones, was that there's always a big heart to the film. Like mm-hmm. Edward Scissorhands, and even Beetlejuice as well, has that beautiful you know, re- reunification of the family at the very end of it. But in this one, I think this is more of a portrait of the human spirit. <laughs> because it's about it's a film about creation and relationships and identity and death. Part of what you're hitting on here is that this is a movie by an artist, Tim Burton, which is also the portrait of another artist, Ed Wood. It's one of those examples of a filmmaker making a film about someone he obviously idolizes and has a great deal of affection for. Ed's kind of faith and optimism and just persistence in making his movies the way he made them. You could also call it his obsession in making the films he made the way he made them. Yeah. And and like a person like Tim Burton who you might not like his more recent films but you definitely know a Tim Burton film when you see one because it's a Tim Burton film. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get to talking about the movie more specifically but when we finished watching this you said you could see why I, Brian Mullen, responded to this. Could could you see me as a child or an adolescent watching and re-watching this movie on VHS? It's not that you're even a fan of sci-fi because you're not. No. All these things the film is about, they're not what you're interested in. I think it's the earnestness, the idealism, the kind of the wide-eyed exuberance, and dare I say the slight outcasty nature of Ed Wood. I mean, not to delve too much into our personal life, but Brian, you are not a transvestite, okay? <laughs> but Not recently, I mean, not since I was Cher a couple of Halloweens yeah. ago, but yes. Did, did you watch it thinking, you know, that you were a bit of a different kind of kid, both in your obsessiveness and your later identity? Actually, it's making me realize that in our previous episode, we talked a lot about your adolescent viewings of Rocky Horror and what that may or may not have meant unconsciously. I don't think I related to Ed and his secret life of being a transvestite in any conscious level. What I did relate to about Ed was his dogged persistence in wanting to tell stories, you know? Yeah. Certainly, as a child, being an only child, you know, I spent a lot of time by myself, writing things by myself, talking to myself, acting out my own stories in different voices when I was alone in the basement bouncing a ball. And <laughs> I like, love that, that anecdote. <laughs> Brian, little Brian, bouncing a ball off the basement wall, talking to himself. But not just, Sean, not just talking to myself, making up 
movie scripts. Did any adults like come down no. and just check on you every so there often? There was no one there. It was just me. And, and acting scenes and playing all the parts. It's perhaps that infantile love of creativity that I share with the sensibility of this movie. And also, I have to say, like, in high school, the kind of art that I loved the most were things that were funny but had that sort of turned to have a pathos to them. So this is why I loved Chekhov. Like, when I discovered that, like, The Cherry Orchard was a comedy, but it was also sad at the same time, or something like Hannah and Her Sisters, which to me was, like, mind-blowing, because it's, like, a funny Woody Allen movie that also tugs at the heartstrings. That's probably my favorite Woody Allen film. That thing of being a drama and a comedy at the same time was a thing that for... A dramedy? <laughs> <laughs> a tragic comedy. As adolescent Brian, I was just like, that is what art is all about. Now, I'm not sure that I still agree with that. Yeah, no, in the same way that I don't look at Rocky Horror and, you know, have those same emotions again, which in some ways is quite a good feeling. Yeah. I mean... We've moved, we've both moved on. I have to admit, I did find some of the structure of it slightly repetitive, but still so winning and so heartwarming and funny. We, we've we talked in a lot of generalities. Maybe we should kind of pin down a little bit more who Edward is, what actually happens in the film. Okay, so when we meet him, he is a theatre director on the opening night of a dismal play. And he kind of rallies his cast with his exuberance, telling them how great they were and how they shouldn't feel down. You know, he also cast his girlfriend, Dolores, isn't it? Mm -hmm. In one of the roles. and She plays a kind of weird ghost of the battlefield who kind of floats down from the sky. Close. She, like, squeaks down. <laughs> yes, on a winch. Rusts down. <laughs> and she's, like, holding the dove of peace. <laughs> and, I mean, from there, he, you know, he's an aspiring and struggling filmmaker and he's a bit of a chancer. He, he has a kind of a day job on, on a Hollywood lot, like, looking props or... Schlepping props yes. from one studio, a sound studio to another, in which he also kind of has uh, encounters with these cinephilic old guys with stock footage. Yeah. And, he, and he watches the stock footage thinking what he could do. And I think that was the first time you laughed out loud because the old guy has been showing Ed just a series of old stock images of like a buffalo stampede followed by like an atom bomb blowing up followed by like an octopus. And he's like, something strange has been causing the buffalo to <laughs> rampage to, uh, <laughs> It reminded me of how I used to write essays in school. Yeah. Today I got an idea about something and I'm going to twist this topic into exactly what I want it to be. Uh, does that kind of like, you know, when it's like when you look in your fridge and think, okay, I've got four things and I'm going to make this. And that's how I think he viewed the, the filmmaking as well. It's, qu it's quite playful. He is this eternal optimist. So they have this awful community theater in Hollywood where there's like five people in the audience and like the roof is leaking and it's terrible. And they all, you know, gather at the bar to like look at the opening night reviews when they're hot off the press and it's completely dismissed and they're all crestfallen and then Ed finds the one sentence that says, the costumes were extremely realistic. That's the way they envision this character that no matter what kind of setback he has or what kind of problem comes his way, he's able to kind of make a success out of it, at least in his own mind. It's like, that's the shining light that he that he goes by. Nothing will put Ed down. And isn't that how you operate as well? <laughs> that is not how I operate. My relationship with Sean is dreadful, but at least... At least... <laughs> We're not putting that no, in at all. No, Ryan. 
is this what you expected from Johnny Depp in this role? Yeah, I expected him to be very likable. I mean, I yeah. knew that was going to be the case. Yeah. He's this very optimistic person who also comes to the aid of this frail old junkie actor. Bella Lugosi. Bella Lugosi, you know, and he is the momentum of the story of the film. Yeah. You know, and they, the situations they find themselves in are a, as a result of his exuberance and desire to move to move the story forward, to get his film made, to see who else he can rope into this film. Yeah, he's the ringleader. Yeah, he is. And, like, you got to think of it, like, he's, yeah, he's exuberant, happy-go-lucky, but he's also quite charming, considering the people, the weird, motley crew he bands together who basically end up worshipping him. (laughs) The only person who really is with him and then kind of really leaves him, right, is his his first girlfriend at the start of the film, who we've already mentioned, Dolores, played by Sarah Jessica Parker. Because she's sort of the one she's who's constantly of, bursting the bubble, isn't okay, she? Okay, she's a 1950s Carrie Bradshaw, right, essentially. No, no, she's much meaner than no, Carrie Bradshaw. No, but Carrie, you know, she does exactly the same thing that Carrie does, which is like, I cannot be in this relationship with you, you know? Like... <laughs> You know, like, those carry things that she does. <laughs> One of her first lines, when they're reading the review of the um, play that Ed's written that she's been in, she says, Do I really have a face like a horse? Now, that, <laughs> like, went deep when she said that. I was like, whoa. As it becomes increasingly clear that he's really bonkers, she's kind of increasingly less into it and less on his side and less the supportive girlfriend. She doesn't come across as villainous. She comes across as being unable to hack this world. She's more of a normal. I mean, when we talk about normality, I guess the big reveal that comes in terms of their relationship, early on, there's the kind of scene of them at the house and Ed's like working on his latest script. And then she's sort of in the closet and she says, hon, have you seen my sweater? And then they like cut to Ed kind of looking, looking sheepishly like, so what's that all about? Okay. So Ed is a transvestite. That's a thing that gets revealed quite early on in the movie. It's not like a big secret. You know, that for me was quite refreshing because I was really worried that it was going to be a reveal. You know, they'd open a door and there he would be. And then at some point they do actually do that. She's using the technique of dramatic irony. <laughs> the audience is told something that SJP is not privy to, which is that... Ed has been trying on her clothes. Yeah. So Ed is given uh, the task of directing a film called Leonard Lenda, which he imbues with his own experience of transvestism. Uh, he's very enthusiastic about this script and he gives it to Dolores and says, go into the room and read it. She goes in, she, we, she reads the script and, and she, as she opens the bedroom door slowly, we see Ed in full done up. Like a pink frilly Angora sweater, skirt, nice little and a wig. Yeah, yeah, a great wig. You know, and... That's how she becomes informed of his pastime. The reason why that's come to be is because he's sweet-talked his way into a very low-rent movie studio. I don't know how much of this is really based on the real way that these cheap movies were made, but this kind of cigar-chomping, completely stereotypical producer has said to him, look, I've already (laughs) booked into all these second-rate theaters in Alabama and all these other places a movie which is based on the Christine Jorgensen story, but they haven't actually made the movie. So he's made a poster for and sold a movie that hasn't even been made. So they need to make this movie fast in seven days. And of course, Ed because he has this deep and actually authentic connection with the idea of gender nonconformity, has kind of come and said, I'm the perfect person to make this movie. So he has this artistic connection to it. And he basically takes this 
schlocky film and wants to rewrite it as a thing called Glenn or Glenda about a, a man who is not gay but loves women's clothing and feels that wearing women's clothing connects him more to women, right? Yeah, and this is quite a nice aspect of the film in which Ed's interest in transvestism in women's clothing in be- being a woman is not some kind of flaw or weakness or victimization, which I think films have done or have made gender identity some kind of turning point on which a film rests. But... It's an idiosyncrasy of yeah. his, like in the way that someone else might just have an interesting interest or hobby. In feet, perhaps. Yes. In terms of how Johnny Depp plays it, do you think he's playing the character in a queer way or a feminine way? Well, I mean, he uses the dressing of women's clothes as a way to relax him, to make him happy. He says he loves women, and by dressing as a woman, it makes him feel closer to women. It isn't right to call Edward, or at least the way that he's depicted here, a unspoken transgender person. This is not necessarily his identity. It's something he likes to do, and the movie doesn't dwell in any kind of overly Freudian, psychologized way on, quote, what this all means. Yeah, I completely agree, because I think humanity and humans are complex creatures, and that we have idiosyncrasies that we manifest in different ways. Mm -hmm. Now, around the same time as he's about to begin making Glenn or Glenda, he also has a chance encounter with probably the other most significant character of the film, who is Bella Lugosi, played by Martin Landau. If I remember correctly, he's just walking past a funeral parlor, right? And he sees inside Bela Lugosi in a coffin. The joke is that, like, he must be dead, but then he kind of wakes up and says, no, too small, too small. (laughs) I feel very constricted. So first of all, I mean, most of our listeners probably know who Bela Lugosi is, but just a quick rundown. Yeah, Bela Lugosi was the original Count Dracula. Big star, right, of the, the horror movies of the 30s, yeah? But by the time that this film is set, Lugosi is a good 20 years past his prime. Everyone in this film talks about Lugosi as a kind of washed-up old star that everybody thinks is dead and nobody really remembers. He's lost his wife, he's living in a tiny L.A. bungalow, and... He's a victim of typecasting, he's a victim of success in some ways. Boy, Mr. Lugosi, you must lead such an exciting life. When is your next picture coming out? I have no next picture. You gotta be joking. A great star like you, you must have dozens of them lined up. Back in the old days, yes. Now no one gives two fucks for a very well. But you're a big star. No more. I haven't worked in 40 years. This business, this town, it chews you up, then spits you out. I'm just an ex-boogeyman. Make a right. Not the classic horror films anymore. Today it's all giant bucks, giant spiders, giant grasshoppers. Who would believe such nonsense? I'm just thinking of this now. It's sort of an obvious comparison. I can't believe I haven't thought about it before. But do you see an aspect of Norma Desmond? Oh, yeah. Completely. Completely. (laughs) Yeah. And the relationship as well. That she can't shake this identity that follows her everywhere Mm -hmm. to her detriment. And Bela Lugosi, the same. 
and these young men who turn up, uh, who they see as a kind of a reignition of their careers, of their success, of their happiness. Ed is kind of, is kind of a fanboy, right? Because he's loved these old horror movies, and he recognizes Lugosi immediately. He gives him a ride back home. There's a few scenes where they catch an old screening of Dracula on the TV, and Bella is like reenacting the hand motions and stuff, and like. Ed is transfixed, and it's it's very sweet and very tender. It's the heart of the movie, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's the heart, because, like, Ed loves this man before he even met him. The whole possibility of just spending time with him is so rewarding to Ed, that, and the fact that, that Bella then places his trust in Ed being able to restart his career and make him relevant again. It, it becomes, like, like, all codependent relationships, you know... <laughs> I had to be told by people that codependency was a bad thing because <laughs> because in many ways you can see how touching it can be. These two people who so desperately need each other. Ed does get into the door of some places because he's able to say, look, I have at least one name star that I can be attached to this film, Bella Lugosi, even if people do think he's been a has-been. At least he's someone people have heard of. He has been a has-been. <laughs> so even though Glenn or Glenda is meant to be this kind of topical drama about a sex change, they write in a role for Bella Lugosi. They describe him as a puppet master. And it's one of those things where it's like, we'll piece together something around it. And essentially, he is Dracula. Like, this is the thing about Bella Lugosi is that he is always Dracula. Even when he's Bella, he's Dracula. You can see how this identity has bled into his psyche and that he starts the picture making this strange kind of introduction to the film. He's like some sort of weird old scientist. Yeah. And his scenes feel very self-contained. I mean, they're not unlike, I know we keep saying this, but like Rocky Horror Picture Show. The, the criminologist. Yeah, the way that there's that guy who's like narrating the entire film and has no relation to the rest of it. Yeah. That's kind of what Bella Lugosi is doing. And he's just saying things like, I pulled the strings. Yeah, so there's like, <laughs> like a great part where... Um, you know, because Ed has said, you know, you're like the puppet master. You, you, you pull the strings, the whole thing. He's like, ah, ah, ah. Be fair. Wait. Pull the string. Pull the string. Cut. They keep it in the picture, but like, that you can tell that the crew members are like baffled as to why he's going off script and what this possibly means and why Ed is so kind of like smiley happy about this strange ad-libbing. No choice that Ed or any of his colleagues make at any point tends to make any sense. And there's lots of jokes about how, you know, they'll be filming a take and someone will bump into a door or something will go wrong. And they're like, do you want to take that again? And Ed's like, no, it's perfect. <laughs> Let's move on. You know, he's like... he. Everything about the way that Ed works is like to say, let's move forward. Let's let's do the next thing. Oh, we have this problem. Let's solve it. We we, we stole a um, mechanical octopus from the Warner Brothers lot. But with no engine. With no engine. So we'll just have Bella jump into a pond, wrap the tentacles around himself, and kind of flail as if the, this inanimate object is attacking him. And there's something like outrageously terrible about it but also sort of delightful and fun. And this kind of manic logic starts to take over at least most of the crew, with the exception of um, Sarah Jessica Parker as the girlfriend. And what do we find out about Bella, though? Yeah. 
This is what I think you mean when you're saying how it's a, it's a darker film. It's not a children's film because he has a very serious problem. He's addicted to morphine. Increasingly over the course of the film, this becomes an issue as Ed and Bella continue working together. You know, we see the track marks on his arm and a couple of times Ed in very dark scenes gets a call in the middle of the night saying, Eddie, I'm in trouble, come come meet me. And he goes to Bella's apartment, and Bella is either, like, completely passed out and almost overdosing, or later he has a gun, and he's, like, ready to kill himself. Did you think that that interplay between the kind of kookiness of the film set world and the, the seriousness of this old man destroying himself, did that balance work for you? You know, I liked it, yeah, because... It's kind of the example that life gets in the way. The, the reality of the fact that one character is suffering or in pain or has a problem, you know, you can kind of cast that aside a little bit and focus on the, the jolly parts of it. But we're constantly reminded that Bella is a morphine addict. He does become this heart and soul and father figure to Ed. You call him a father figure, but he's deteriorating, and Ed is kind of like a young child who's caring for an a- ailing parent. Well, yes, it is that ailing father figure type, and the responsibilities therein. I Because in many ways, Bella has already been a parent to Ed his entire life by inspiring him and being a, somebody he kind of grew up with, you know, and now the time has come to, in some ways, repay the favour of taking care of this ailing person. Yeah, so... In parallel with this relationship between Bella and Ed that's at the core of the movie, there's a series of sort of three movies that get made. We already talked about Glenn or Glenda, which they finally, by hook or by crook, do make. No one will review it. It doesn't open anywhere. But Ed still takes it to a bigger level studio and tries to get signed on to a bigger picture. The guy um, wants him to pitch him some movies, and he comes up with these amazing titles. I'm so disappointed that this film didn't feature the making of Dr. Acula. Get it? Dr. Acula. Dr. Acula? (laughs) And also the other one he he pitches to him is something called The Ghoul Goes West. (laughs) (laughs) But the movie they end up making is called Bride of the Atom. Ah, yeah, Atomic Age stuff. Yeah, we could do that. But then when they finally see Glenn or Glenda... They're like, no way, this this movie, Glenn or Glenda, it can't be a real film. It must be yeah. a practical joke. And so what they say, like, Selznick's playing a practical joke on us, isn't he? <laughs> At this point, Ed kind of launches himself as an independent studio of sorts. What's he called again? Ed Wood Productions, uh, the mark of quality. As someone who works in the lower reaches of the theater world today, I mean, how many crowdfunding things have I and people I know had to do to get their things on? That's essentially what Ed does, right? He gathers together this weird assortment of characters. They're just sort of lovable weirdos who have nothing better to do, or they have some kind of access or money or something that can help him. We have Tor Johnson, this huge, hairy, thick, He's a Swedish wrestler. Swedish wrestler. Beast of a human being, you know? (laughs) Yeah, he sort of tends to eat whole chickens and gobble them in his mouth. I think in the first movie they cast him as the scientist's assistant, Lobo. Yeah. (laughs) Who else? Vampira, who is the original Elvira, as it were, presenting schlocky horror films on late night TV. 
beautiful kind of gothic curvaceous. But, no, but how does she get involved again? Because initially she says she won't do it. She doesn't get involved until later because at first they run into her and she's a bit too big of a star. But then she gets fired from her job. Ed is sweet and he doesn't care that she's turned her nose up at him in the past. The poor girl needs a job. Mm -hmm. um, then we have Bill Murray. Oh, yes. As Bunny Breckenridge. Yes. That this character deserves his own film as well. Who's he? This gay character, this old queen. Well, who, yeah, I guess actually in modern parlance, a trans character, because he's, he's desperate well, to get a gender reassignment surgery. But we find out that he doesn't do it. He never gets to do oh, it. Like, fascinating character who... He has this lovely camp cynical quality, yeah. but also seems deeply loyal to Ed, like, through the whole thing. It's so Bill Murray, though. Yeah, that kind of sarcastic... Dryness. Eye-rolling, yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. Um, so at one point, they're desperate, they need some money, so Ed happens to be in a bar, and he overhears this kind of really weird young woman talking about how much money she has in her bank account. Her name is Loretta King. She says she has the money. Well, she sort of implies she has the money, but then she doesn't. And so Ed stuck having cast her as the um, female lead over his girlfriend, Paul Dolores. Dolores. Who has to play the file clerk. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, there's Criswell, played by the great Jeffrey Jones. Yes. Did you recognize him from Beetlejuice? Yes, of course. Yeah. He lost weight since Beetlejuice, didn't he? Maybe. Who is he? Oh, no, I'm, I I know Jeff, Jeffrey Jones is um, Winona's dad, isn't yeah. he? Uh, who is that other character in Beetlejuice who plays the interior designer? Is it Wayne Knight? No, it's not Wayne Knight. Are you sure? I'm 100%. Okay. Can you imagine Wayne Knight as an interior designer? No. Okay. He doesn't have that range. He plays Criswell, who is... like. Have you noticed that some people in this film, they start off as talents and then end up washed up in these films? With Ed Wood? Yeah. Like, Chriswell seemed to seemed to have an act that made him money, and he's a TV psychic or a soothsayer or whatever you want to call him, who makes bogus predictions about nonsense. So, somewhere around the time that they're making the second film, originally called Bride of the Atom, and then gets re-titled um, Bride of the Monster, Dolores, who has been increasingly dissatisfied with the way Ed makes movies, she just screams at all of them, You people are not normal! You're all a bunch of weirdos wasting your time making shit! <laughs> she literally says Doesn't that. she say dope addicts as well? She says, The usual collection of dope addicts and weirdos, Ed Wood Productions. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And she walks off the set. So Ed is now San's girlfriend. He's made two movies that have been complete failures. And this is the point where Bella goes really down into the depths in his addiction to drugs that he needs to be checked into rehab. That was quite a horrific section of the film. And again, very palpable and seemingly realistic. He's like screaming in these yeah. chambers of this kind of primitive yeah. drying out in a in a drug rehab yeah, center. And then sad. and all these paparazzi show up and are kind of snapping his picture. Really, it's just the kind of vultures swirling around the story of a Hollywood person down on his luck. It's true. But something good does come out of Ed being in the rehab center. He meets his del delightfully monotonous second wife. Who is that? It's Patricia Arquette. <laughs> She's waiting in the waiting room. What's she doing? She's knitting booties for her uncle. I love Patricia Arquette. I do. But she's she has this flat delivery and everything. But it's perfect for this, right? Because yeah. Because she's like, 
maybe I could knit some booties for your friend as well if he'd like them. And then she and Ed go on their first date to, like, the fun fair, remember? And they go in the House of Spooks. Yeah. Ed takes that as his moment to tell her his big secret. Huh? I like to wear women's clothes. Panties, brassieres, sweaters, pumps. It's just something I do. And I can't believe I'm telling you this, but I really like you, and I don't want it getting in the way down the road. Does this mean... You don't like sex with girls? No, I love sex with girls. Okay. Okay? Okay. <laughs> like, it's, it's great. And later on, I think she really sums up Ed at one point. Eddie's the only person in this town who doesn't judge people. Who happens to poor old Bella then? He's in drug rehab and he's getting a bit better, but he doesn't have any health insurance and he's he's got to mm, leave. Sad. And Ed kind of pays his final bill, takes him back home. Mm. Do you want to describe it? Bella's on his front porch and Ed has the camera. And so even though Ed doesn't have any financing to make a new movie, he tells Bella that they're going to start, he's like, we're going to start filming some second unit stuff for the next picture. And he just makes up off the top of his head... You're an old scientist who's leaving your house and you're thinking about your dead wife. And then Bella's like, maybe I'll stop here at this rose bush and sniff the flowers. It's very touching because the way I viewed it, Ed is documenting the last moments of his friend's life, giving him the option to be on film once again for the last time. And you know Ed that will find a way to put this footage somewhere. And then Bella does soon die after that. And Ed, we see this scene of him in a screening room watching and re-watching that footage. And that's what really gets me when I think of that. So yeah. Ed really seems like he's down on his luck. He's lost his best friend and frequent big-name star of his movies. He doesn't know what to do when his landlord comes in ready to evict him. And he makes some passing reference to the fact that he and his Baptist church are looking to finance 12 movies about the 12 apostles. Mm. And Ed, being the chancer that he is comes up with a brilliant plan. He says, look, what if you finance a film in a tried and tested genre like science fiction <laughs> so you can make some money and then fund your films for the Twelve Apostles? So he basically hoodwinks this entire Baptist church into giving him money to make a movie called Grave Robbers from Outer Space. And this great scene where they're all getting baptized in that Baptist way in which you've been dunked into the water fully robed as an adult. And they've also pledged that Bella Lugosi is going to be the name star in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Don't forget Patricia Arquette's chiropractor to like, be the body double for yeah, Bella. Yeah, because, because from the nose upward, mm. he's the spitting image of Bella. So as long as they only show half his face, yeah. uh, he'll be able to pass himself off as Bella Lugosi. That's what's so simultaneously touching and humorous about this film is that lovely 20-second footage that we described becomes the kind of centerpiece of this movie. It's the only footage of Bela Lugosi in this movie. At some point, the Baptists come in and say something like, Mr. Wood, we've been reading the script and it has numerous references to grave robbing. <laughs> and he's like, well, the film is called Grave Robbers from Outer Space. He's like, the idea of violating consecrated ground is anathema to us. 
And Ed gets so frustrated that he has to relax. By dressing in his fluffy Angora sweaters. Which, of course, sends the Baptists even more in a tizzy. And, Sky high. And Ed runs off the set. It looks like everything's disastrous. And who does he run into at the local Hollywood watering hole? He bumps into Orson Welles. I don't think this is a historically, you know, this is not a real meeting. But Orson Welles has been invoked several times over the course of the film. Yeah, because Ed is, what, in his early 30s, and he keeps referring to the fact that by the time Orson Welles was 27, he'd made Citizen Kane. He constantly feels that uh, he's running out of time or he's running out of options, and by bumping into Orson Welles, who seems to be lamenting his new picture... He says to Ed not to, like, give up or be dismayed. I think why it's significant is because you have the person who's commonly considered to have made the greatest Hollywood film of all time. Yeah, especially the greatest debut, for sure. Right. Meeting the person who's commonly considered to be the worst filmmaker of all time. This is Orson Welles in the 1950s. Citizen Kane is a distant memory. And actually, like, in real life, Orson mm. Welles continually struggled to find funding for his, his later movies. I mean, if you go onto YouTube, you can see those ads for what's the champ what's the champagne called paul mason champagne oh yeah and like that like it's funny but it's sad the finest french champagnes from paul mason and like can you imagine the pain of making citizen kane and going straight down from there he had a famously difficult career yeah, yeah. a career in which this great filmmaker is facing the exact same difficulties that, the worst that this filmmaker, terrible yeah. filmmaker is facing well, the financing just fell through for the third time on Don Quixote. Do you know I can't believe it? That sounds just exactly like my problems. It's the damn money, men. You never know who's a windbag and who's got the goods. And then they all think they're directors. Ain't that the truth? Do you know that I've even had producers recut my movies? I hate when that happens. And they're always trying to cast their buddies. It doesn't even matter if they're right for the part. Tell me about it. I'm supposed to do a thriller at Universal. But they want Charlton Heston to play a Mexican. You know, I listen to this thinking, oh, gosh, that film never got made, did it? And Brian's like, Touch of Evil. Yeah, it's Touch of Evil, which is a fantastic film, but again, has these ludicrous qualities where it's about the compromises that happen in art, you know? Mm-hmm. Barbra com- Streisand has a song about this. <laughs> what is it, Sean? It's called Putting Together. Art isn't easy, etc. Is this lovely line that Orson Welles says to Ed? He says, Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your time making someone else's dreams? Mm. And I mean, it's completely hokey, and this meeting between the two of them is completely hokey. But Ed goes back with renewed enthusiasm. He finishes the film, which turns out to be Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah. And Which I really want to see, by the way. Yeah, I want to see all these Ed movies. But he says, you know, this is going to be the one I'm going to be remembered for. And it's my tribute to Bela Lugosi, even though he only appears in 20 seconds of the film. Yeah, that's quite sad and quite touching. He gets up on stage and he says, this is for Bella." Yeah. Does he say anything else? No, that's all yeah. he says. And although they've had a disastrous couple of premieres for some of their earlier films, this one at least in the way it's filmed by Tim Burton, has this triumphant quality that here this gang of oddballs has defied the odds and gotten together to make this movie that will be remembered. Maybe not for all the reasons that they want it to be, but it will be remembered. Then we get these title cards, don't we? So they, Yeah, quite ki- detailed title cards. This kind of triumphant ending that tells us lots of the weird things that have happened to them all. So Criswell 
goes on to have a career appearing occasionally on The Tonight Show doing predictions. Bunny Breckenridge, as we said, never gets the sex change Where's operation. his movie? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Tor but... Johnson becomes immortalized as a Halloween mask. And then there's a very sad one about, about Ed. Yeah, so Ed descended into alcoholism and making what they call nudie films. Don't they, don't they yeah. Say? Like, it's a bit of a bitter end, isn't it, to the picture? Because... Well, it is and it isn't. Like, the actual dramatized events leave us on a high note, but then those title cards do say, you know, it's not as if everything works out for him. He does remain in a dedicated marriage to yeah, Kathy through does. his whole life. Until his death. Yeah, he's still making work, probably equally schlocky as the things that he made before, you know? Yeah. You come away feeling a, a warmth and respect for this person and an appreciation that this person mattered so much to Tim Burton to make this very personal, touching and entertaining film. But this also, it's twinged with sadness, really. Kind of, uh, you know that you go to the movies for a little bit of escapism and fantasy and this film is unfortunately punctuated with the true life misery in some regards of these people, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, a vampire died in 2008, so mm-hmm. like, she lived a long life. And she went on to sue Elvira, you said. Unsuccessfully. <laughs> I think there's something that I noticed in watching the film this time around, which is how Tim Burton's very skilled movie making and Ed Wood's very simplistic movie making start to merge as the film goes on. So the last shot, they zoom up away from the theater where Plan 9 from Outer Space has been premiered, and they pan over what is an obviously fake model of the of Los Angeles and the mm. Hollywood Hills, and it's the exact same fake model that we've seen them flying mm. fake UFOs over mm. as they're making the movie. And in the same way that Orson Welles is on some level the same kind of creator that yeah. Ed Wood is, Tim Burton is again almost the same kind of creator that both of them are. And I think probably I related to this as if I was somehow the same kind of creator in this artistic lineage of people who just have these visions that they want to see realized. And whether that involves wearing Angora sweaters or wrestling with fake octopi in... in uh, in pawns. Well, there's still time, Brian. <laughs> there's still time. So, um, I was very glad to share this movie with you, Sean. Did you enjoy watching it? It didn't suck. <laughs> I liked it. I did. Okay. So, thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks with our special guest, Alan Flanagan, who we featured previously in, in the last season for Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. We're going to be looking at the Irish film Breakfast on Pluto, which tackles issues of gender identity again, but is set in a very uh, parochial and patriarchal Ireland of the 1970s. It's uh, based on a book by Patrick McCabe. It's a Neil Jordan film. I'm looking forward to showing it to Brian. Can't wait to be back with the Irish boys again. We hope you'll join us when we look at Breakfast on Pluto. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, at Pod or our individual accounts, at Sean McGovern X and at B.A. Mullen Speaks. Please, please, please do subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher and find all of our past uh, episodes at www.broadappealpod.com. Yeah, and if you like us, tell a, tell a friend. I mean, leave a review, but tell a friend. That's how we get more listeners. Um, in that case, Brian, time to play into our coffins. <laughs> 
I will make a formaldehyde nightcap. Do you want it straight or on the rock? Just in my veins, that's okay. <laughs> all right. Uh, see you all in two weeks' time. Bye. Bye.